Federal employees have continued to express frustration at the Thrift Savings Plan website, the portal through which millions access their accounts. At its recent monthly meeting, though, the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board revisited its IT modernization project, which deployed in May of last year. We get an update from the board's Director of External Affairs, Kim Weaver. Kim, good to have you back. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. And some of the chief functions that people were complaining about, it looks like you have made progress on those. And let's begin with just being able to specify your monthly withdrawal or your minimum required distribution. That was, I think, making people tear their hair out. Is that largely past us now? It has been totally fixed. You can set your monthly payment as low as $25 and in whatever amount you want to take. And you can change that month by month if you want. You can. And the other improvement is that you can change that installment amount with just one phone call. Previously, we were having to call in, cancel the amount you were getting, and then call back and restart. That has been revamped. And you can now change your monthly payment with just one phone call to the thrift line. But you need a phone call. You can't do it through the website. And that's what I was just going to say. Coming in the spring, you will be able to do that online. And so you won't have to call the thrift line at all. I don't have anything more specific than spring, but it is coming. At the board meeting, Accenture, the contractor was there. I mean, did the board kind of say, hey, folks, you really got to get this turned around? They did. The board members were asking some, I would say, pointed questions to the Accenture officials who were there and expressing the fact, because, of course, our board members are hearing directly from participants as well. So they're well aware of the challenges and the frustrations that people are feeling. Not only as fiduciaries do they want to get it fixed, but as human beings, they want to make it as easy as possible. I figure if I'm getting email, the board must be getting a lot more email because I get get requests for help and I I can't help people. I don't have access to it and it's not really my authority to to do that. So that's good to hear. What are some of the other issues? I mean, people were wondering about just the phone call time. What are the trends there and whether the question could be answered when they did reach someone? So as to the second question, every call center rep, we call them PSRs. Every PSR went through refresher training. So to the question you just posed, if we answer the phone quickly, that's great. But if you get somebody who then can't help you, that's not as great. And so every PSR went through refresher training to make sure that they understood our program and understood their specialty because different call center reps focus on different issues, withdrawals, loans, whatever. And then the other thing that we did was we added in statements to TSP's My Account. So participants can log into their TSP My Account And in their secure mailbox, they will see quarter one and quarter two of 2022 statements and the annual 2021 statement. And that will provide a lot more information to people so that they can see an entire two-year cycle of their TSP. And how far back in history can people look at what they've been doing with TSP? And in the old website, could they go back forever? In the previous website, they could go back to, I believe, 2003. In the current website, you can go back to June 1st of 2022 because that's when we switched over. If you need statements or information prior 
to that, you can call the thrift line and we will mail you statements. No plans to load that old data up so that people can do that on a self-service basis? So the reason we didn't was we looked at the people who had accessed it, how frequently that data was used, and we determined that based on the usage versus the money and the security of having that live data available, we didn't transfer it over. But as I said, if people want it, they can call in and get that, the older statements. We are speaking with Kim Weaver. She is the Director of External Affairs at the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board. And just getting back to the phone question for a moment, according to your results from the most recent month, there were 240,000 calls queued up, 230,946 answered. So you had just a very small number that were not answered. Is that pretty much within your metrics and hope for customer experience? I mean, it's not like the IRS, which doesn't answer any of them. Roughly 80% of the calls were being answered in less than 20 seconds, which is pretty darn good. What we're focusing on at this point is continuing that service level. And we also have 35% repeat callers, which means that they either didn't really get the answer they needed the first time around or that their issue hasn't been resolved. And so we're focusing on trying to reach out to those people and be proactive and sort of identify people who are calling back repeatedly and reaching out to them to find out what exactly the issue is and how it can be resolved. And what is the integration on the back end there? That is to say, if someone is calling in and you give your credentials to the rep on the phone, Are they also using the same website and the same system to look up things and help answer questions? Yes. The representative has access to the participants' data. They don't have access, because it's not live, to like the previous historical data. So if I called and I said, I want my balance from 2018 in December, they don't have immediate access to that because it's not live data, but they do have information to, we dispersed your monthly payment on X date and it was this amount with this amount of tax withholding, for example. And for people that want to move funds around from one fund to the other, those types of activities, just general maintenance of your account, according to one's own judgment, that's all fully operational? Oh, yes, absolutely. And that has been since day one. And you can do that online. And you can sh- log into your TSP My account and you can move money as you desire. So if you feel confident, you can move it some percentage out of the G fund into one of the other hotter funds if you feel like it. Exactly. And we should also point out that besides online and calls, you get email and written correspondence. And the distinction between the two in the monthly report says that people still write letters to a TSP? Oh, absolutely. You've got to remember that a big chunk of our participants are postal employees. As a former postal employee myself, letters are still in our lexicon, as it were. And so we respond to whatever channel we get them in. If we get letters, we respond to those. We respond to emails. We answer phone calls. Ava is the bot that is there. That has been enhanced to be more useful to people. If you want to call in, some people like to call in to the thrift line and go through the system to get like their balance, for example. And you need a PIN number, much like you do with a bank or an insurance company. 
you can now change that PIN number through AVA. And so that will assist you if you choose to use the IVR system to get your account information. Just from looking at the statistics, it seems like you really got to get those SIRS people and some of the older folks to at least get to the email age because the one area where you really have a backlog of substantial numbers is written correspondence. Right now there are uh, 4,443 outstanding. There's only a couple of hundred emails outstanding. Yes, and that's exactly true. And it's, as we, we both know, right, letters seem to take longer than emails. You can respond to an email relatively quickly. Letters just take a little longer, and we are working on that. And just, if you would, maybe before we uh, wrap up here, just characterize the board's feelings about Accenture, about the site. Are they optimistic now, and do they feel like they're out of the woods I think we're out of the woods, yes, but I don't think that we're done. And in fact, the board asked Accenture to come back again relatively soon. And I don't have timing for when relatively soon is, but the board's interest level is not abated. And obviously, we as FRTIB staff are continuing to work with Accenture to make changes to address problem areas, but it is stabilizing And we're able to address problems faster, which I think is really key to a more mature program. Kim Weaver is Director of External Affairs at the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board. As always, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. 
And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. That, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, It had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, What I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful to be at a place where 
you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be? One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.